I'm very discerning in what I watch in movies, but generally I love movies. But there are type of movies that I have a hard time watching. And that type of movie are war, realistic war movies. Like, I can't watch Saving Private Ryan. Like, I just can't. Right? It's just so traumatic. Um, and one of similar type of movies that's very traumatic for me that I have a hard time watching again, or I don't think I could ever sit through an entire sitting, the movie that I have a hard time watching recently is the movie 1917. Have you heard of 1917? Right. Man, if you haven't watched it, go to the Starks, have him like shoot up the big screen in his in his like basement and watch it, right? 1917 is a is a is a war movie that takes place in World War One, right? And the background of the movie is this. The Germans invaded France, right? And in the Western Front, the Germans are in the Western Front of France. But some, for some reason, the Germans kind of retreated from the Western Front. And the British Army said, hot dog, they're retreating. We're going to go after them. They're about to go after, the British Army is about to go after the German Army at the French Western Front. But an airplane reconnaissance realized the Germans are retreating because they're, they're about to set a trap for the British Army. So when the British Army goes into the Western Front, then the German Army is going to spring their trap on him and kill them. So thousands of people of, of British soldiers' lives are at stake. But the smart thing to do is to contact the British commander of the Western Front and, say, and, and tell him, do not advance to the Western Front. Don't go in. But the problem is, because, because it's early 1900s, the communication, we don't have internet, right? the communication line between the commanding office and the Western Front has been disabled. And the only way that the British Army can get news to the Western Front is they, had, they, had, they hired, they called two young soldiers. Two young soldiers are called to go to the Western Front of France and deliver the message to the commanding officer in the Western Front not to advance. So the entire movie is about these two soldiers journey going into wartime France to deliver that message to the commanding officer. And boy, is that movie brutal. They go through, they face fire, enemy snipers, explosions. But regardless of the opposition, they rush, and they're not deterred by their resolve to deliver that message, because that message will save thousands of people's lives. Do you know why I'm starting my sermon with this story? Because it is with the same urgency and gravity that Paul is telling Timothy to preach the gospel. Timothy, right, is the preacher, is the, is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And in his charge is to preach and witness for the gospel. But, his, but Timothy is to preach and witness for the gospel, not in calm, peaceful era, but in the midst of war, of opposition. The, Rome, the Roman government is going after him. The opposition forces of the, in, within the church is going after them. Satan himself is going after Timothy. But Paul is telling Timothy, despite this opposition, 
like those two soldiers in 1917, you cannot stop. You need to press on. You need to be diligent. You need to be faithful. That's why Paul compares Timothy's charge, right? Last week we talked about it. Timothy, you are a soldier, you are an athlete, and you are a farmer. Soldier, athlete, farmer. What do all these three metaphors have in common? It means, Timothy, your your life is not going to be easy. Soldier in the middle of war is not an easy life. It's a matter of life and death, right? Athletes preparing for a race, right, is not an easy life. They have to be hyper-focused and disciplined in the way they run the race. Farming is not an easy life. It takes toil. Sometimes I tell my wife, man, I just want to quit lawyer, quit being a pastor. I just want to farm, right? And my wife says, do you know how hard farming is? And I go, you don't know what you're talking about, woman. So I went to a Thanksgiving. No, I didn't say that. I go, oh, you're right, honey. Hmm, Maybe I was wrong, okay? But I, I said the same thing during Thanksgiving to my friends. I want to, sometimes I want to quit and I want to be a farmer. And they were so offended. Why? Because her, their dad is a farmer. And they said, do you know how hard farming is? And I go, I had no idea. Athlete, soldier, farmer, it means hard work, opposing work. But Paul says, Timothy, you must do it. What is young Timothy supposed to do? How is he supposed to be motivated to live this harsh, difficult life? That's where verse 8 comes in. Paul says, verse 8, Timothy, what you need to do, where is verse 8? Omne? Yogine? Verse 8, Timothy, what are you supposed to do? Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. The bulk of the sermon today is about remembering Jesus Christ. Timothy, you are to remember Jesus Christ. The word remember is, in the the Greek form, is a present imperative form. Which means, the word remember here, if you're properly translated grammatically, it means, Timothy, keep on remembering. Keep on remembering Jesus Christ. The way you'll be motivated and energized, right, and the way you have power to do this possible harsh job of preaching the gospel is you need to remember Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy is called to identify his mission, identify his purpose, identify his labor with, through his understanding of Jesus Christ. Timothy, when you're preaching the gospel and witnessing the gospel, keep on ministering to, keep on remembering Jesus Christ. Identify what you are doing, the purpose that you are doing, and the purpose in which you are living for through by identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. If you forget Jesus Christ, Timothy, you're going to lose the motive to do your work. Identify your life, Timothy, with Jesus Christ. Small group leaders, can you understand? I'll explain, I'll expound a little bit more. What does it mean to remember Jesus Christ? It is to identify with Jesus Christ. 
What does it mean to identify with Jesus Christ? You look at everything through the filter of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example, a silly example, but example nevertheless. I was saved in the winter of 1990, early winter of 1990, around, around the time that young Josh Song was born, right, of winter retreat. I heard Romans chapter 8 being preached to me at University of Illinois. My heart was strangely warm. The light, I, I felt the light of the gospel penetrating my mind. And I think that was when the moment that I was, God was beginning to work in me. Went to church all my life. I attended VKPC, Virginia, Virginia Baptist Church down the street. But he was in college when, when I started to understand. But after that understanding encounter with Jesus Christ on, on the winter of 1990, I, wanted, I, I started to love the Lord, so what did I do? I started to get involved in college ministry. And my college ministry was made up by passionate, well-intentioned, but not very deep-knowledge Bible guys. And what we were focused on was just doing stuff for the Lord, Right? I was just doing, I was still so focused on doing stuff for the Lord. For two years in college, all I was focused on was doing stuff for the Lord. When looking back, I didn't really have much understanding about the Lord until I went to seminary. And what happened when I went to seminary? My girlfriend dumped me. I was alone in Philadelphia, and my girlfriend dumped me. It's bad enough being alone in a city that you don't, you don't know anyone. But you're dumped, you're dumped there. You're rejected there. And boy, was I in pain. Boy, did I eat my stress. I remember my mom sent me a bunch of kim in Korea, from Korea. All I did was eat and kim for like, month, and I gained like 15 pounds. By the way, you can gain 15 pounds if you just eat popping kim for 15 days. You can, you, can, you can gain weight. Like for a month, you can gain weight. But as I was eating my face, and I was, as I was like in pain, somehow I read the gospel story in John, specifically about, I'm sorry, not, not in John. Maybe, was it in John? I was, I was reading Jesus' crucifixion. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cried out to God, the fact that God was no longer there with him. Up on the cross, when he felt alone. In my hurtful, isolated, broken, heartbroken state, I kind of felt what Jesus must have felt on the cross. It was that moment when something in me clicked. And I started to identify myself with Christ. I think next to being saved, that moment when I identified myself with Christ is the moment when Jesus Christ became 
very real to me. Timothy is called to personally identify with Jesus Christ in his mission. What does it mean to be a Christian? You identify yourself with Jesus Christ. Y'all have been good, good boys and girls, grown up in churches, well-meaning youth pastors and EM pastors told you things that you need to do. But before focusing on what you need to do, your heart has to identify yourself with Jesus Christ. This is what John MacArthur said. John MacArthur said, Timothy, remember when Paul called you to be a soldier? Timothy, remember the first, before God has called you to be a soldier, Jesus Christ was the soldier, the greatest soldier, fought the greatest battle, and won the greatest victory. Timothy, I know I'm calling you to be a soldier, but in order for you to be a soldier, remember the greatest soldier, Jesus Christ, who won the greatest victory. Identify your soldier being a soldier with Christ being the soldier. Timothy, I know you're, I'm calling you to be an athlete, but remember Jesus Christ, who is the greatest athlete, who ran the purest race, and he will ultimately win the greatest prize. I know, Timothy, I'm calling you to be a, to be a, to be a farmer, but remember Jesus Christ, who is the true sower of the seed, tiller of the ground, reaper of the harvest. Remember Jesus Christ, the preeminent one. You're called to be a soldier, athlete, farmer. Yes, but remember that Jesus was the ultimate soldier. Jesus was the ultimate athlete. Jesus was the ultimate farmer. Let your heart identify yourself with Jesus Christ. That's how you do the work of the evangelist, Timothy. So, my leaders, are you following me? I'm preaching this for you, man. Okay? Remember Jesus Christ. But he's, calling, he's telling Timothy specifically, not just to remember Jesus Christ and follow after him, but remember the gospel. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Not only is it just remember Jesus Christ, but you are to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. First of all, Risen from the dead. Remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. What does that phrase mean, risen from the dead? So I'll go to pay, pay, pay careful attention. Risen from the dead. This phrase means Jesus was once dead, and now he has risen. But in order for Jesus to be dead, he was first human, Right? So the phrase Jesus from the dead, first of all, signifies Jesus' humiliation. Jesus' humiliation from being in the very nature of God, but he gave up the privileges of, of being God, 
And he made the humiliating journey, a downward journey into a human being, to become a human being. When Paul refers Jesus Christ as once dead, he means first and foremost, Jesus Christ humiliated himself, lowered himself from heaven onto earth, from God to man. Jesus Christ humbled himself. Jesus Christ being dead also means he lived as a servant, obeying God, loving others. The reason why Jesus died, it is so that he could obey God, so that you and I can be saved. The death of Jesus symbolizes the obedience of Jesus Christ. And the death of Jesus Christ means Jesus Christ became the propitiation, a substitute for our sins. The man who was sinless became sinful, became the subject of God's wrath, so that the true subjects of God's wrath, you and me, do not have to be subject to that wrath anymore. So the death of Jesus Christ symbolizes his humiliation, his servant obedience, and his death for undeserving sinners. The death of Jesus Christ symbolizes the sufferings of God. Timothy, it is very important for you to remember the death of Jesus Christ. Because the Lord whom you served suffered for the sake of his obedience to God, for the, in order to save, him, save the elect, in order to make the unrighteous righteous. Timothy, Jesus Christ suffered and died. Therefore, if you are following after God's footsteps, if you're following after Jesus' footsteps, you too are, are called to, to be humble, to be obedient, and perhaps even to suffer, Timothy. Do not think suffering is abnormal, Timothy. You are following in the footsteps of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. For those of you who are in ministry, in various forms, whether it is small group leader, worship leader, preacher, pastor, whatever your calling is. Parents, suffering. If you follow Christ, suffering, being uncomfortable, being sacrificial, is the model you follow. People will not pay attention to you. People will ghost you when you try to reach out to them. People will use you. Dude, I've been used. When they want something, they want to have lunch with Pastor Jay, and I, do, I, I pray for them, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I fellowship with them. And when, when they get what they want, they say, sayonara, God, and they leave. You are used. You're supposed to work tires, tirelessly. And ministry is supposed to break your heart. Who said ministry is supposed to be easy? Who said loving other people is supposed to be easy? Who said leading people are easy? Is easy. It is part of the package because that's the Lord that you serve. 
Remember the parable of the ten talents? The unwise, useless servant didn't do anything for Christ because he was afraid. People are comfortable being limited in their usefulness to Christ because they're afraid of being overburdened. They're afraid of being hurt. They're afraid of being tired. They're afraid. Don't you think Timothy was afraid? He's preaching the gospel under the rulership of a king who set Christians on fire to be served as human torches. Timothy, don't think it's strange that you're suffering. Jesus suffered and died, Timothy. But the news doesn't end there, right? Jesus Christ also rose. Timothy, suffering is part and parcel of being in the ministry. But Timothy, also remember, the Lord that you serve rose again. He's not dead. He is alive, Timothy. The Lord who is alive will not leave you to go through the suffering alone, Timothy, because he is alive. Timothy, not only is he alive, Because of his obedience, God placed him above every other name. And Christ is ruler of all things. Because he obeyed God, God placed him in the highest place. And Jesus Christ rules everything, Timothy. So the person, the Lord that you serve, is not only alive, but he controls all things, Timothy. Timothy, don't be afraid of suffering. Because the Lord that you serve is alive and control all things. And Timothy, just as his obedience led to glory, your suffering for the gospel, Timothy, will lead to your glory. If you look at Revelations, you can see the martyrs for, for the faith are honored by God. Those who toiled and labored and had their heart broken for the Lord in prayer, in service, in commitment, in sacrifice. The world may not recognize you, but the Lord will. Timothy, suffer well. Because the more you suffer, the greater your glory will be. Jesus says the Pharisees will have no reward in the kingdom of God. Why? Because they already received all the rewards on this earth. Christians are supposed to live a life of just pouring out their lives in service for God and his people. And if you do, at the end of day, The Lord will give you glory. Timothy, my Timothy, therefore remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Small group leaders, L, L, L understanding, por favor. He says, Timothy, not only do you remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, remember he's the offspring of David. The offspring of David means means Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah 
of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11, it says the Messiah will come from the seed of David. The, 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 so when, when he says, when Paul says Jesus Christ is the offspring of David, he means Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. Let me give you a, a better presentation, another presentation, another way to describe Jesus as Messiah. Okay? I was thinking about this like all week, and then I listened to Bible Project guys, and they agree with my analysis, so I think it's true. Okay? Jesus and Paul gives a like he, they use this illustration of an acorn, of a seed dying, falling to the ground, right? If the seed falls to the ground and dies, it springs forth a new tree, a new life, right? Paul compares this to, or Paul compares that metaphor to the glorified bodies that we will receive. But I was thinking about this. Jesus Christ because he died and rose again. When he died and when he rose, with his resurrection, he brings forth the tree of life into the world. Tree of life in Genesis chapter 2 is the tree in the middle of the Garden of, Garden of, Garden of Eden where it is symbolizes God's life. The tree of life is God's life. If you eat from this tree of life, you will get God's life, eternal life in you. Right? In the middle of the garden, there's a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes that God is the one who, de who decides what is good and evil. But when men and women eat from the garden of tree, good, when men and evil eat from the knowledge of tree and good and evil, they're really saying, you're not the one who determines what is good and right. I am God. So eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes men's willingness to say, I'm not going to trust God for what is right. I'm going to decide what is right, right? That tree is a tree of rebellion. Eating from the tree is a symbol of rebellion. Because men and women ate from that tree, every human being born thereafter believes what they think is right. They're the one who determines what is right and wrong. The nucleus of sin is people believing what they think, how they feel is what is right. Right? Whether it's their sexuality, whether it's their gender, whether it is their greed, whether it is whatever it is, every human being thinks what I feel, what I think is right. And therefore they deny God's life because they choose their own life. But when Jesus Christ died... His, when he is like the seed that fell on the ground. And when he was, when he was raised up again, God raised a tree of, tree of life through him. In this world, there's a spiritual tree of life that is Jesus Christ. If you eat from that tree, if you go to him and reject the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you go to that tree and consume Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will have the life of God flowing through you. Is it difficult? Small group leader, can you explain this? You're on your own, man. Jesus as a Messiah means 
Jesus is giving you a new tree that you can eat from so that you can have eternal life. And the only way, the way you consume that tree is to understand that for all your life, you thought you were the one who decided what is good and right. But that is just dumb and foolish and sinful. Repent of that and embrace the tree of life that is in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. Jesus is the Messiah means he's not only your ticket to heaven, but Jesus gave you this new tree, a new reality for which, when, from which you can consume and you will have eternal life. You have love that you don't have by yourself. You have wisdom that you don't have by yourself. You have courage. You have patience. You have joy that you cannot generate within yourself. You can have all of it. When you go to Christ, Timothy, Paul says, remember that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. You are not the Messiah, Timothy. What you are called to do point to the Messiah and God will save those people. Remembering Jesus Christ is Timothy is to, is to know that his role is to be the pointer. He's pointing people to the Messiah. Look, pastors burn out because for some reason they think they're responsible to convert the congregation. I cannot convert anyone. Neither can Timothy. The only thing that Timothy can do is pray and depend upon the Messiah so that the people will recognize Jesus as the Messiah so that they will be saved. Timothy, remember that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Christians, are supposed to remember Jesus Christ. They're supposed to remember Jesus Christ's suffering. They're supposed to remember Jesus Christ's resurrection. They're supposed to remember Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You are always called to remember this. Your spiritual power, really, it really comes down to knowing, remembering Jesus Christ and knowing who he is. The spiritual power does not come when you do stuff for Jesus Christ. The spiritual power comes as you have a deeper understanding of who he is, of his suffering, of his lordship, of his kingship, of, his, of him being the Messiah. The, the more you have a clear understanding of that, the more you'll start to live spiritually vital lives. Look. This is a part of the sermon where I have to be very careful what I say to you. Okay? All smiles, nothing but love for you. Okay? But let's just kind of open up our Christian assumptions here. If I ask a lot of people, a lot of Christians, tell me why you're a Christian, okay? 
many people will point to a place in time where they felt God's presence, right? I say, why are you a Christian? Some of you will say, well, because when I was in high school at a retreat, I felt the presence of God, or I cried, right? Or, you know, basically, I cried. Basically, retreat tears equals I experienced God, basically, right? And those are all, Good experiences, I suppose. But if you're pointing, if you're justifying your Christian life based on that event that happened to you, isn't the basis of your faith your experience rather than who Jesus Christ is? Right? If you are justifying your Christian life based on some past experience, maybe you're really not identifying your faith with Jesus Christ. You're identifying yourself, your faith, with something that just happened to you. Can I be a little bit more mean? Let me, let me just be a little bit more mean and real. Let me deconstruct that experience you had at a retreat. Maybe you were crying because you were very frustrated with life. And you heard something and it just clicked. <laughs> and that, that, that frustration just like came out. Maybe you felt guilty about something. Maybe the background music is very manipulative, by the way, isn't it? The background music. Like, the sermon goes really hard, and there's a manipulative background music. And maybe you got swept in the moment, and you started to cry. Am I being a little bit mean to you? I'm not questioning all those issues aside. God can work through those, through those experiences. But if the, corner, if the very definition of your Christianity is what you have experienced with God in the past, then perhaps you're not really identifying your faith with Jesus Christ. You're identifying your faith with what has happened to you. Yes, encountering Jesus in a particular moment of time is important. But from, from that moment on, if you're saved, Christ would have continually worked in you so that you will learn to identify yourself with Christ and not so much with what has happened to you. If you tell me why I'm a Christian, and if I say I'm a Christian because God saved me in the winter of 1990, if the winter of 1990 was the very definition of why I'm a Christian, then there's something wrong with my faith because I'm not identifying myself with Christ. Guys, are you identifying yourself with Christ? Are you? Do you know? Are you just touched by his suffering for you? Is his suffering for you motivating you to serve others? 
Are you just confident because you're serving the God who's alive and who controls all things? The reason I love praying in the mornings, I suppose, is because I get to be engulfed within the presence of Jesus Christ. It's like I'm swimming in the lake of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when he's so real to me, oh, man, it is nothing like it in the world. I am engulfed in the knowledge of Christ. Guys, prayer is about being engulfed with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Swimming in your understanding of him. Being in his presence. Without it, you cannot live the Christian life. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Quickly, and and I'll go really fast because we're only on verse 8. Remember, this is the gospel that I preached, right? Remember, it is the gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, I suffered too for the gospel. In fact, I'm in jail because of the gospel. But Timothy, I'm so happy. Why? Because the gospel, the word of God is not bound. It's not just static. It's continued to move on in the world. Guys, think about Paul's situation. Paul devoted... Paul gave up everything for Christ. His reputation, his education, his standing within his community. Paul used to be a person whose parents were really proud of him, right? Like Paul, Paul, you remember Paul's mom and dad? My Paul, educated, Pharisee, man, I'm so proud of him. But when he met Jesus Christ, all that went out the window. Paul suffered much for Christ. And what is it? What is it? What does he have to show for it at the end of his life? He's in a stony dungeon about to be about to be about to be executed. Think about it. If you devoted your entire life for Jesus Christ and by doing that it gets you killed, won't you be bitter about it? Don't you think God owes you a good life? I think a lot of people think God owes them a good life, right? But Paul's not bitter about it. Paul is encouraged. Why? Because the gospel is continually being preached. Why is Paul not bitter? Because for Paul... The purpose of life in this world is for the gospel to be preached and for people to be saved. That's how Paul sees this world. Paul does not see this world as a a world that that exists for his own comfort or well-being. Listen to me carefully. Paul does not see this world existing for his own comfort or well-being. Paul primarily sees this world as a place where the gospel is preached and people are saved. Jesus says, do not worry about what you will eat, where you will live, what you will wear. What Jesus is saying here is, the reason for your anxiety 
It's because you think this life is about what you wear, what you eat, where you live. If your purpose is your well-being in this world, you will worry, Jesus says. But seek the kingdom of God. Seeking the kingdom of God means knowing what this world is about, knowing what you are about. If you know what you are truly about, even if, what, even if you're not well in this world, as long as God's work is being done, you be encouraged, right? That's exactly what's happening to Paul. Paul doesn't give a flying fit about 401k plans, retiring in Florida. Paul does not give a fit about anything. He only cares about the gospel being preached and the people being saved. And that's being done, Paul says. Paul says the elect are being saved, verse 10. Right? I, therefore, I endure everything. I suffer everything for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? The elect are the people that God set apart before the foundation of the world to become his people. Even before the foundation, before the Big Bang, before there was anything, God in his mind set out a group of people who will belong to him in this world. Those are the elect. That's the doctor of predestination. If you have any questions about doctor predestination, ask good old Pastor Ujin, right? But the doctor, that's the doctor predestination, election. God set up for the foundation of the world, people who will be saved, people who will, be, will, be, who will belong to him. How are the elect saved? By the hearing and the understanding of the gospel. If you simplify this world, what this world is about, according to Paul, is the elect being saved. And the elect come into faith as the gospel is faithfully preached and taught and understood. And Paul says, I will suffer everything for that. And God is continually doing a saving work as the gospel is being preached in the world. Guys, I think you need to understand that God's agenda for you is quite different from your agenda for you. God's primary agenda for you is for you to be saved and to come into living faith in Jesus Christ. For your children to be saved and come into the faith in Jesus Christ. I went to small group on Friday, right? And I think, was it Sungbin? Who says, oh man, PJ, software engineers are having a hard time finding a job. And I go, oh man, my son, what's he going to do? Then I was writing the sermon. I go, the purpose is not my son getting a software engineering job as much as him being saved and coming to living faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I will suffer all things for that to happen. Okay? Oh, man. I want to do the other verses, but I can't because of time. Right? But in verses 12 to 13, Paul gives us encouragement and warnings of why Timothy must be faithful to preaching the gospel. I will tackle this next week. 
Small group leaders, you can do it on your own if you want to, but I will review this next week. But the underlying basis of today's sermon is remember Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel. Remember sovereignty. Remember his lordship. Remember that he's a Messiah. Remember that he gave you the tree of life so that you can live. And that's what this world is for. Let us pray.